You are tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. This morning, hundreds of thousands of more essential workers are now eligible to sign up for the vaccines. Kaiser Permanente reports that its phone lines are seeing a heavy volume of calls. Queen says they're focused on those 65 and older and those with chronic diseases. Uh, It expects to hear more about when other categories of essential workers can book appointments. The Hotel Workers Union says it's been told not to expect to book appointments until March 30th. We talked to Hilton Rathel of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii about the process following the announcement by state health officials last week to expand the group. Also last week, we learned the military was making the vaccine available to dependents 16 and older. We wondered if perhaps any of the supply provided to the Department of Defense and the Veterans Association could be shared with the general population here in the islands. In some states, caregivers of vets are being offered the vaccines. Here's Hilton Rathel. That is possible. I don't know that definitively, but I do know in Alaska, for example, that, you know, Alaska being having native Alaskans with their own supply, that when all the native Alaskans got vaccinated, their clinics, the native Alaskan health clinics, they actually then started vaccinating the general public. So I know it happened in Alaska. I don't know definitively that it could happen in Hawaii, but it may happen. But I'm not sure exactly how that allocation works in terms of, you know, for the military. And the VA also, they have their own separate supply. So Native Americans, American Indians or Native Americans, they get their own supply. Native Alaskans got their own supply. Military got their own supply and VA got their own supply. So there are different stream distribution streams across the country. Clarification, so just Native peoples of those areas? I mean, what about Native Hawaiians in Hawaii? There is No, they do not have a unique designation. They're not recognized at a federal level. As a tribe or that kind yeah. of thing? Gotcha. Okay. How are we doing on test kits? You know, we know that the state bought a test that expire in March. How is that getting used? Uh, but how are we doing on PCR tests? What's your understanding? Well, fortunately, there is a very, very low incidence of COVID in the state which means that there are a lot less people being tested than what there used to be. So that's good news from that perspective. So there are plenty of tests around right now. There's all sorts of different tests around. And as you said, we did get some pretty significant allocations going back a few months. A number of those kits have been used. You know, we are still testing people. You know, people are going to hospitals, for example. Everyone gets tested. There are people who want to travel. They need to get tested. But people are not being tested at anywhere near the rate that they were. So overall, there are no issues. I mean, if anyone needs to get tested, there are plenty of test kits around, which is good news. And it's even possible, as you just mentioned, that some of these test kits which we have will expire and will probably not then be used. Now, the fact that they have an expiration date, it's like, you know, some food items or other items, just because there's an expiration date doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, it's actually expired. It's, um, just what it's been tested for. But because there are plenty of test kits around, we do not anticipate that anyone would be using expired test kits. There is plenty of test kits to go around for people who do need to be tested. The wrinkle with the variants, I mean, we just have a better shot at keeping the numbers low, though, as more and more people get vaccinated, you know, even with it being more contagious. Yeah, the variants are still a huge concern and will be for a long time. And one of the reasons is because there's a number of variants out there. And while there's some preliminary work done by the major manufacturers, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer, AstraZeneca, even though AstraZeneca is not approved in the US, it is approved in other countries, those manufacturers are testing their vaccines against these variants. But it takes a while to do these tests you know, to test enough people in a population, and then you've got to monitor them for a period of time after you do do the test. So it's going to be a while before we have really strong evidence about how good these these vaccines are or are not. Now, one of the other things that's going on is that right now the vaccines are only tested for, for Moderna. It's 18 and above, Pfizer is 16 and above. So Moderna and Pfizer have started doing trials on children. That's going to take a while. These variant tests are going to take a while. It may be that with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, for example, people have had that vaccine may need to get a booster shot six months from now, nine months from now, whatever, if it is demonstrated that the original vaccine is not 
as effective against some of these strains or variants as we, we hope. We don't know yet if that's going to happen or not happen or going to be necessary or not necessary simply because not enough time has gone past, just like we don't know how long the immunity lasts from these vaccines because the COVID virus has only been around for just over a year now. Still a lot of unknowns. So the variants are a real concern because some of them are much more easily transmittable than the original vaccine. Some of them are more deadly than the original virus. And so it's still a lot to be learned about them. But the more people that get vaccinated, the less opportunity there is for COVID to spread and the less opportunity there is for these variants to take hold in the community. You know, our message is, you know, we've got three different choices right now, or soon we'll have more Johnson & Johnson, so there will be three choices. AstraZeneca is going to go for emergency use authorization probably within the next month, so by May we may even have four different shots available. And our messaging is if you can get an appointment for a shot, doesn't matter whether it's Johnson & Johnson, Pfizer or Moderna right now, or AstraZeneca, assuming that gets approved, you know, people should take the opportunity to get vaccinated so that we can, again, protect ourselves, protect our friends, protect our neighbors, protect our co-workers, and get back to a more normal life. And wear a mask still. <laughs> yeah, for, for right now, we still need to wear a mask because while we've got almost 500,000 people with at least one shot, they're not fully vaccinated and they don't get full immunity until mm -hmm. they get the second, second shot. shot. So we only have about, you know, 150,000 roughly that have both first and second shots in the state of Hawaii. So that number needs to get a lot higher before we can really relax, you know, the, the social gathering, right. the mask wearing, and, things And like do you that. know, uh, you know, with the trials, the folks that participated in the early trials, because some got placebos and some got the real thing, did they ever get the real vaccine or did they have to keep those control cases kind of going? No, no, actually, the reason I know that is actually because my wife was in one of the trials and she ended up getting the placebo, mm. which she didn't find out till the end of the trial. But anyone who was in a trial does get access to the vaccine and so they get um so my wife for example has now been immunized because she participated in the trial gotcha. so so it just depended on when that trial ended yeah it just yeah, depends yeah. on when the trial ended there's a period of two to three months after you get the second shot that they were monitoring reactions mm, for right okay interesting and then we talked to the guard they said they're they're prepared to help with these mass vaccination sites they haven't been called yet are there any discussions about that well right now because of the limited supply of the vaccine our mass vaccination sites are only operating about 50 to 60 percent capacity mm -hmm. so we have a lot of capacity yet gotcha before we need to add additional sites now we do have plans there has been plans for a while to add more sites but it doesn't make sense to add sites when we can't even max out the capacity at our existing gotcha. sites. Okay. So we're making sure that everyone across the state on all the different islands are getting vaccinated. You may have seen the news that we are doing concerted effort to get all of Lanai and all of Malakai vaccinated. They'll all be vaccinated sometime probably by early to mid-April, the entire islands. And we've got mobile vans going out to the communities. We've got our pharmacy partners going out into community care homes, foster homes. We've got teams that are going to be going out to public housing areas and some of those high-risk areas. So there are a variety of initiatives across the state to get to our most vulnerable populations. We're working with face-based groups, we're working with community groups, we're working with the you know, AARP, for example, to get the messaging out. We've got multiple materials in multiple languages you know, to make it easier for people to read and understand. So there's a lot of initiatives to make sure that we're reaching everyone who is willing to get a vaccine. That was Hilton Rachel, head of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, talking about the rollout of this latest very large group of people now eligible to sign up for vaccines.
Support for HPR comes from Highway Inn Hawaiian Food in Kaka'ako and Waipahu, offering dine-in and take-out with delivery or curbside pickup, and now with packaged dishes such as Lau Lau and Pipikaula. MyHighwayInn.com. What has it been like for local doctors during the COVID pandemic? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk to one physician who has written an entire book of all she's learned during the past year, and she has tips to share for all of us. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The next virtual info session for the distance EMBA is 6 p.m. April 8th. Registration at scheidler.hawaii.edu. This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Unihua. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're zeroing in on a town on the island of Maui with a peculiar name. This agriculture and residential community is located at an approximate elevation of 3,600 feet on the northern slopes of Haleakala. That's what makes for the crisp, clean air and cool nights of the town of Olinda. Featuring gorgeous views of north and south Maui, Olinda properties are some of the most sought after on the island, even though it's primarily populated by ranches and farms on wide expanses of open land. The town's home to the uh, prestigious private prep school, Seabury Hall, and the Waiho Spring Trail, a one-and-a-half-mile hiking trail through a pine forest leading to a spring with waterfalls. In the past, it's hosted its share of celebrities. Legendary author Mark Twain once lived off Olinda Road, the town's main thoroughfare, and Rainbow Bridge, a film featuring an outdoor concert performance by guitar icon Jimi Hendrix, was shot in a pasture there in 1971. While the prominent nearby towns feature distinguished Hawaiian names like Pukalani, Makawao, and Kula, this area, a small area of Maui, sports a name that might seem very out of place, unless you know why it was given and what it means. So we're wondering today, do you know what the name Olinda means? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nayreet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide with support for nonprofits, including Hale o Hawaii on the island of Hawaii. Learn more at nayreethawaii.com. It's been a year since our economy was brought to a screeching halt. We talked to one small business who managed to survive and thrive in spite of the pandemic. Wayne Samir studied marine biology and now peddles fish to restaurants in cities from coast to coast. The seafood wholesaler reflects on the past year as it was almost to the day that the bottom dropped out of the market. I would say beyond tough, it's kind of like it was impossible. I mean, you can imagine that all of our business, 95% of our businesses sell to restaurants. We sell to chefs, hotels, resorts, casinos all across the country, every state, every city. And in, in a matter of one week, I remember March 15th or 13th, and it, it just all closed, entirely closed. We were down 95%. You know, I've been through a whole lot of business challenges, a whole lot of crises, 9-11, you know, wars, mm-hmm. financial crisis, Y2K. There's yes. all these kind of things that come along in business where everything just seemed to stop. But this was, was particularly very zeroing like it's your business are shut down it's it's just closed all closed i kind of know after having gone through it 
with other crises is that there is always something. It's a matter of how you being able to find it. So we didn't lay anybody off. We didn't cut anybody's pay. We didn't cut anybody's benefit. We kept them all on. And I have to say my crew is very experienced. They're used to change. They're used to this business we're in, which is fish, right? It's very volatile. Something that comes out of the ocean is always changing. Kind of got on our heels. We dug in and we just pivoted wildly. And we scratched at it and came up with a brand new business plan and put it in place overnight. (laughs) For past 15 years, we've been developing this direct-to-consumer business. I've been studying this thing for like really 15, 16 years. How do we sell to the people directly? So we already had this business model in place, and we've been tinkering with it. We had the mechanism. We had the but, you know, we had the website, we had the delivery, we had the packaging, we had it was all set in place. It really was not a big part of our business. So we just took that out of the out of the um, closet and we put it into work and we began selling to people directly across the country. And that just took off because during COVID, everybody was stuck at home, kind of afraid. They didn't want to go to the stores, they didn't want to go out. And so we provided, we sold fish right to the people's home. The demand just started growing and we we jumped on that on that opportunity we we grew it really fast like i say my crew is amazing they they really were we put it together really quickly and ramped up being able to send it to households directly so what's going to happen now and the unique thing about our business is we deal across the country we deal across all sorts of time zones vacation areas resort areas urban areas so we kind of get a real national sense of the thing and i believe that there's a huge pent-up desire of Americans to come out and to just party, to have a good time, to go to restaurants, to travel, to get out, to stretch your legs. So I also think that whoever was able to hang on, I think restaurant business will come back very strong. I don't think that people really will change their attitude or change their behavior. I do believe that there will be added New behaviors. I, be, I believe that people will, in addition to wanting to go out to restaurants, wanting to go out to uh, to travel, they will also be very happy to order food and order goods online and get them to deliver to their home. I don't. I don't see it as one taken away from another. I see it as an addition. And I think some of these businesses that are, are going to pivot and they're going to take advantage of that new additional behavior and they're going to. In addition to selling food in a restaurant or selling food in their store, they're going to also sell them online to people's homes. And I think that we all kind of saw this coming. Uh, We thought it would evolve a little slower, but COVID jump-started the direct delivery of goods to people's homes. So this may actually expand your business. Yes, it's going to expand our business. COVID showed us uh, what that retail business, that direct-to-consumer business looks like at scale. And it's great. We actually really like it. We, you know, it wasn't great to go through COVID. That was a terrible thing. But if you ask our team here, they're all like, "Hey, this really does work. Let's let's keep doing it. Let's add it onto our business. It's uh, quite a viable thing." And you're a family and business. I, You've got everybody working on <laughs> on your oh, company. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You get them, get them all. <laughs> the wife, kids, brothers, sisters, all of them. They're they're all working. And in addition to, uh, we, our team is huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say we actually have a lot of families that, besides my own, there's a lot of families that have worked in our company for decades, for long, very long time. How large is your company? How many employees do you have? 40, 40 people, wow. 40 employees, okay. is, uh, all together with processing, uh, the buyers, the salespeople, administration, packaging. Right. So do you go people. down to the fish market there at the pier and, and choose yes. the fish? You do that we're there every day? six days a week, Monday through Saturday. Our, our buying team, we have a team mm-hmm. of buyers, our buyers and our, our uh, packaging and handling people. We go down to meet the boats every morning. We're down at the at the Pier 38. We we buy fish every single day, brand new fish every day. So it's kind of a constant process. We're constantly buying fish, constantly delivering, constantly shipping shipping fish out. We've got to support our fishermen, and we always paid top prices to the fishermen during COVID, even though it was beyond the marketplace, because fishermen have to survive too, mm-hmm. and, and they have to go out and make and make money. So we were, you know, we were one of the companies that we stood by paying them full price for their fish, 
And there was, you know, when it hit, there was like this all of a sudden this stagnation in inventory. There certainly was a lot of fresh inventory that was just, you know, kind of there that needed to go. So what sells uh, across the country? I mean, here we know people like their ahi or poke and all of that, but uh, what seems to sell? Hawaiian ahi is Mm -hmm. is unique across the country. Everyone across the country, restaurants, chefs, everyone knows that ahi out of Hawaii is not like the ahi they get in other places or the frozen ahi. It's unique. It has a unique color, unique flavor, and that's like the the most popular fish across the country. But you know what else is interesting is all the other Hawaii fish that our boats here catch, like opa, manchong, and ono, and mahi-mahi, if it comes from Hawaii, it's a, it's a quality they can't get, not even on the East Coast. You, you be, might be surprised. Most of our customers are like in states like Florida, which is surrounded by water, or in New York City, which is, has a huge fishing industry, or California, which has a huge coast. So a lot of the so these places have, have huge fishing industries, but fish from Hawaii is unique. It's uniquely desired by a lot of these chefs. That was Wayne Samir of the Honolulu Fish Company, who has been called the FedEx fishmonger as he sells ahi to top restaurants across the country. The family business has operated for several decades in Kalihi, exporting Hawaii ahi. Just this month, Samir uh, started direct sales to customers here in the islands as he looks to grow his company even during these challenging times. Look for links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. For a reality check, Honolulu Civil Beats takes aim at something called fake farms. You know, the gentleman estates that some say may not do much to contribute to agriculture. Reporter Stuart Yurton joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So, yeah, we certainly have our share of fake farms across the state. Uh, yes, we do. It's It's been something that's uh, been going on for a while, and uh, it looks like now the legislature is uh, trying to do something to change it. Right, and, and uh, folks say that, what, these fake farms really uh, don't do anything to, uh, to help agriculture. In fact, in fact, they might actually hurt serious ag efforts. No, that's right. So uh, just briefly, the background is, you know, the state uh, land use law and the county zoning laws uh, basically allow uh, there to be a farm dwelling on agriculture land. And in Honolulu, for example, there are lots that can be as as small as two acres, and you can have a farm dwelling. Uh, The issue is that farm dwelling isn't really that well defined, and you can end up really converting a a piece of ag land into a uh, residential, a pretty big residential lot, building a house there, planting some fruit trees and maybe some uh, herbs or veggies or something, and then calling it a farm. And it's, it's completely legal. And given uh, housing, the situations and demand for for housing, especially luxury homes, um, there's a there's a big uh, incentive for people to do that. So yeah, that that's the situation now. And you and folks, you folks have highlighted Olomana uh, and some uh, uh, parcels there. Right. So this is out um, at the edge of Kailua near Waimanalo. It it is a, a section, a, a pretty unusual island of land classified and zoned as agriculture really in that whole area most of it's either conservation or urban and this is ag land and again it's a subdivision or a a neighborhood of uh maybe about 23 lots and um two acres as small as two acres and some of those sold for a million dollars just for an acre of land with no house yeah, so I, I know, I think just this past week I happened to see an ad in the paper uh, advertising, uh, you know, these gentlemen estates. I think it was on the North Shore here on Oahu and Wailua area. And they were uh, advertising the fact that they were close to surfing spots and, you know, great beaches, but very little was said about ag. Right, and that's the thing, and this is what the critics say. There are people who are pushing for to grow more food here and other things say, wait a minute, we, this, this land really should be 
primarily for agriculture. The bills would say, look, we want this to be really agricultural land, produce at least $10,000 a year um, in, in produce or revenue from the land. You can have a house, but the house really should be an accessory use to the land, not the main use with a little bit of ag. That's what the bill would do. Right, because you drive around these neighborhoods and you see these luxury homes with just a few trees. So the, the definition is pretty broad. Yeah, the definition is very broad. So again, this would narrow it by saying we really want there to be at least $10,000 a year in uh, revenue coming from agriculture on these parcels. Um, how enforceable that would be is, is up in the air that could create some problems. But this is the direction the legislature wants to take to close this loophole. So what does the Hawaii Farm Bureau think? The Farm Bureau is supportive of it. I mean, they say that, you know, we do need land for agriculture. And, you know, not only that, they want to go even farther and look at another portion of the bill that that helps prevent things from being subdivided or uh, put into small parcels. But, yeah, they're, the Farm Bureau's behind it. The city and county of Honolulu's supportive. Um, there's really no opposition that we've seen that's been filed um, in testimony against these bills. So really, uh, these agencies, these different uh, entities, see a need to tighten up these and close these loopholes. Yes. This, again, this seems to be it. I mean, the, the main, the development community has not testified. We haven't seen anything from them on it. So uh, we're waiting we're waiting and we're watching. They, who knows, they could come in, but so far they, there hasn't been anything. Okay, and, uh, and as far as uh, making all the, the crossover, you know, the deadlines and that kind of thing, so at this point it's still moving along. Yeah, the bills. There's a House and Senate bill. Both are moving along. They're all they're they're neither one's been amended, which is pretty pretty remarkable. They've been, they've gone through each house has gone through each bill has gone through its respective house and crossed over with no amendments. So they're they're kind of moving along. Okay. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's reality check. You can read the story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Hawaii Energy, committed to helping businesses reduce energy use during the pandemic. Its Energy Advantage program offers LED lighting upgrades for small businesses. HawaiiEnergy.com slash Energy Advantage. These days, community is more important than ever. One way you can stay connected is by joining HPR's Generation Listen. It's a group of younger listeners who create events for like-minded fans of public radio. Gen Listen is currently looking for leadership team candidates on all islands. If you're interested in learning more about this volunteer position, send an email to hprgenlisten at gmail.com. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ward Village, committed to creating community and developing opportunities for shops, restaurants, and businesses in Hawaii. Learn more at wardvillage.com. Did you know that cashew nuts start out first as cashew apples? Well, we reached out to a family farm on Kauai, which has been growing cashews for the last 20 years. Linda and Scott Newman operate Numanahui Farm, which is home to more than 200 mature cashew trees. But like other small farmers, they also dabble in other things to make money, like honey and vanilla. You've got the cashew fruit, and with that fruit, it makes a juice very high in vitamin C. So then we go, okay, what can you do with this besides drinking it? So I made the jelly and that kind of started branching off from there. And then you do process your cashews and you have a lot of pieces. And what do you do with the pieces? So then you make the cashew butter. And so your product line grows based on what you have on the farm. And that's kind of how how we've grown, you know what I mean? And Scott, talk about what it's been like because you're far ahead of anybody, I think, in Hawaii when it comes to, to these trees and, and what you folks are doing uh, there on your farm. 
Well, it's been a, a process. It takes a while before they get to production level, and you get enough nuts to really make it viable for you. And with the added value-added products from the cashew fruit, we've been able to utilize, you know, all of uh, our crop. And, and that's a goal a lot of farmers try to get to. And uh, we're not 100%, but uh, we try to use as much as we can, and we develop a nice product line with the uh, cashews. We've discussed doing tours here. We're not quite ready yet, but we'll see how things progress. People ask all the time, and I, I think it's a good idea, and we put together some ideas, but people just don't want to come here and walk around and look at trees. And because we're not always in fruit, we want to do something with videos um, so that they can see the process. So we've actually been putting that together. And then I just been looking at some stuff on you got to get insurance and the logistics of it all. And that's kind of where, where we're at. How do you get that all started? And But, you know, I don't see this year, but I told Scott, I said, I hope next year that we can start with because people are interested. I get it all the time on my Facebook. And talk about how you got into cashews. I happened to be on a, a trip in Central America and the driver passed a, a farm. He said, this is the largest cashew farm in Central America. And I said, cashews? Wow. And then I realized the location was similar to mine here and I just sort of onesies and twosies of trees, see if they would grow and if I had the right climate, and grew from there. And eventually I uh, grew my own for my own seeds and uh, just developed the process of uh, harvesting and, and that as I went along. And I hear chickens in the background. I remember when I last visited your farm, you had a, <laughs> you had a chicken tractor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like, oh, I had a couple. And I'd like to say I've retired as a chicken whisperer, but they still hang out here all the time. Okay. And uh, yeah, I have lots of eggs too. Are but very you useful don't go to, to help develop the uh, orchard. You know, I use them to fertilize and to help uh, keep down the the grass and things like that. So they're very useful. We were going to the farmers markets uh, all the time, and the eggs were a nice product for us too. And so have you just been selling your product uh, at those markets or, or online? Um, we did up until really the virus, uh, which shut everything down here. And at the time, we were developing our own website because we had people who would ask how they get a hold of us other than a market. And so timing just happened to click in where we put our website up online, and now we're we're selling right from, from there right now. And, of course, local people ask us, but... Uh, not at the markets because most of them are closed still. Mm-hmm. And then can you talk about just how, you know, you develop the, the product line? So, you know, you get you start with your fruit and then uh, cashews come cashew butter. Then you've got uh, cashew brittle. And I, I love to experiment and cook different things. So I did that actually. Um, Scott's going, how about cashews and chocolate? And so in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, we need to touch base with the chocolatier and do uh, chocolates and cashews. But that's how you develop everything. You What grows good and what can we do simply, easily? And to be honest with you, my products I try to do with local and anything I can uh, from the farm, except for the um, brittle, which is I do get sugar. Whatever we can develop, so that's how it goes. And then I look and I see, and somebody will go, there's a chutney from cashew apple. Is that something people would get? I don't know. You have to market it. And that's where the farmer's market was good, but that's kind of how we develop it. Then you don't want to get too much ahead of yourself. We added things like dried bananas because we have bananas and coconut. Um, yeah, coconut because we have coconut. And then I'm a beekeeper because it's good for the orchard. So you add whatever honey and cashews can produce, you know. Which added a line of cashew flower honey. 
to our list of things on our farm now. I kind of tell people I'm a little bit of a pioneer. I sort of use the term, I've been forced to my way through everything, but I've learned a lot, and um, it's, uh, I think it's it's a good thing. If people want to talk to me, they can definitely get a hold of me. You know, my people just have to understand it's not just growing a tree. Oh, I've got a, I get a lot of, I have a cashew tree. What can I do? Well, to process when the nuts from the cashew tree, that becomes an issue. But here's the fruit, and you can do a lot of stuff with the fruit. So to be a cashew farmer, you have to produce enough to, like Scott was saying, make it viable to buy equipment so that you can process it. Right, because you've got lots of value-added products that you can um, sell. Go from there, But you need the volume. Yeah. And so how much of your property is in cashews? Uh, Have you added more trees since I was last there? We've done some more, right? I would say about two-thirds of our our property is planted out. I'm developing kind of my own variety right now with some trees I have that I grew, I planted, and they've, they've done their own thing, and they're really good trees, so I'm kind of planting with those, too. And you got those where? We've we got a few trees here on the island when we first started from nurseries, different varieties. And then from that point, I've kind of grown my own. That was Scott and Linda Newman, who operate Kauai's Cashew Farm. The Newmans say last year they harvested about 600 pounds of cashews. They do have a Facebook page and website where you can find out about their products. For links to find out more, head to our website. Tomorrow, we'll be showcasing an Oahu farmer who just gave away 1,500 cashew seeds. asking you about a quaint upcountry Maui community with an interesting name for today's backyard quiz. Olinda sits high atop Haleakala's northern slope at around 3,600 feet. It's populated mostly by ranches and farms on large parcels of land with tracts of eucalyptus and pine forests that some say give the area a northern California feel. But it's the clean, crisp air and amazing views of the West Maui Mountains, among other sites, that make it one of the island's most desirable and pricey locations for buyers. It is home to the Maui Forest Bird Recovery Project, whose mission is to develop techniques to recover the island's endangered birds and restore their habitats. Mark Twain and Jimi Hendrix are among the names of well-known people who have spent significant time in Olinda in the past. But of uh, all its past residents, none were more significant than Sam Alexander, one half of Alexander and Baldwin, one of the Big Five corporations that dominated the economy of the territory of Hawaii in the first half of the 20th century. While building his sugar empire with friend and partner Henry Baldwin, Alexander purchased the sprawling parcel of land in 1877 that he then named Olinda, which means Oh Beautiful in Portuguese. We had lots of calls on this one, but uh, congratulations to Gilbert McCrary from Pukalani, Maui. You got it right. Oh, beautiful. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We're looking at innovation stories in our schools and in the marketplace. I first met Edna Hussey 17 years ago. She was the principal of Epiphany School and it had just announced a merger with Mid-Pacific Institute. Hussey is an educator with roots in the Reggio Emilia approach to learning, similar to Montessori, which encourages non-traditional learning. Hussey was excited to share with us something that took off with the little ones this past semester. If you have a little one or have a grandchild, you can understand their discovery of the wonder of the world, finding codes from the preschooler's point of view. 
some of the children were outside working in the dirt, and one of the little kids said that there were too many spiders, and she was afraid of spiders, and she said, you know, we need to look for a map in the dirt, and this little boy picks up a leaf, so they're imagining that the leaf is a map of some kind, and she says something like, um, referring to a spider code, that's where the word was, Mm. and she says, we're detectives looking for spider codes. And it was just one of those regular conversations that the kids have in the playground. And teacher nearby picked up on this notion of codes. We were interested in finding out just why the child named X codes and why she said that they were detectives. So that, that was the basis or has been the basis for this truth about codes, which we haven't yet discovered what the truth is about codes, because it's still in process. So this was something then you started this past fall. We did. We started it back in the month of August when the children were in school. Sometimes the projects don't come up as immediate as that particular or this particular project, but this one was very intriguing just because as adults, right, from your perspective and my perspective, we immediately go to codes as having to, to deal with technology and computers. But, but codes has a, a different meaning for children. So we were interested in finding out what that was. And boy, since then, we know that this is a great project because they can't stop looking for codes. Uh-huh. We, we can tell when it's a great learning project when children can't stop talking about it. And it carries through all parts of the day and it carries on home. So, you know, kids sometimes have parents looking for codes and parents will take images and send it over to the classroom teacher. So we have sort of a a coterie, a collection of all of these images of what children believe are codes. It's fascinating seeing the connections that children are making. And, and, And even then, the physical codes, like in you know, an image perhaps of a leaf, and then they might find a code in a tree ring or a code in a flower, gets us to thinking about what codeness, what is codeness for children, and, and what does that mean also for adults? So the children have been making connections with things that they are now seeing in print. We didn't talk to them like, you know, like a barcode is, but they came to this by themselves that they began noticing codes anywhere and everywhere. Anything that's a letter or a symbol or a number says is saying to them, this must mean something. Mm. And really, that is the beginning of literacy. And to have these three- and four-year-olds come to this is really the, the best way to learn about symbolic representation, what all of these things in their environment means to them. Well, I guess I think of codes, and I think of, like, secret codes and how excited I was as a kid. You know, it's like, oh, I'm a spy, and I'm going to look for yeah, clues, and right. I, I'm hunting for for something, a treasure. <laughs> or, uh, mm-hmm. But that's what mm-hmm. I think of, you know, when, when you talk about secret codes. So it's kind of like patterns, and yes. you're, you're on a hunt. Uh-huh. That's right. They're, and they're still on this hunt. That's how hot, we use the word, a hot topic. That's how hot this is for the children. They're constantly looking for these codes. So this is something you thought, we need to share this. This is a wonderful an approach to learning and what we can do to nurture our kids' curiosity about the world. What educators know is that children are naturally curious, and as they go through a school system or an organization, some of that decreases by the time when they really should be curious because they're about to enter into the workforce. A lot of that curiosity and wonder about the world diminishes, and that is disheartening because we need we need young adults who are passionate, still passionate about learning, still passionate about the world and the community in which they live. So that that notion of nurturing this curiosity and wonder needs to begin early, and it needs to be in a space where other children talk with each other because it's difficult to have that kind of conversation with an adult. But when they have it amongst friends, it's even much more surprising what um, children 
will we'll be talking about in their own insights that they share with one another. So this really is uh, just caught fire. Well, you know, it's an approach really that we have adopted here at Mid-Pacific. When we began our preschool in 2005, this comes from that Reggio Emilia approach. Mm-hmm. Reggio Emilia is actually a little, uh, not a little town, 100,000 people in northern Italy. Um, and they they discovered a, a much better way of looking at children and really respecting and honoring what children bring. It's not about seeing children as, I need to tell you what to do, or I will teach you, because it's this openness about what children have to teach us. And we don't, many adults don't view children as peers in that way, that we we look down at them. Catherine, if we were to go to uh, Reggio Emilia in, in Italy, I was there for um, two visits, and we bring the ideas back, well, it's going to be a little different because here we are in Hawaii um, applying an approach where culture is different, right? So we pay attention to the cultural environment, the physical environment. That all is integrated in an approach that is than unique to a community. So it's unique to us here at Mid-Pacific, but I'm sure it would be unique to any Reggio-inspired community around the world. And so this idea about codes, I mean, is that something then you can take back to uh, Reggio Emilia and say, we did this and and (laughs) look what happened? Yeah, we could. We could. In fact, uh, there is an organization, the North American Reggio Emilia Alliance, and they have asked us to submit, you know, some of our own teacher research, um, an article where we can share this. But, you know, we've also been sharing through presentations that we do. But we've been at this for 17 years now, and some of the best projects have been within the past five years. Mm. Uh, last year's last year's project was on mystery. And it, it started when we were on campus, and then we were in lockdown uh, talking about mystery. Oh, and so we had to figure out how to continue this project through COVID. And it was amazing how it turned out. It fit very well, this idea of looking for mysteries in the world. And so at that point, though, were the children at home? Yes, they were at home. Uh, this is March, and end of March, April, and May. And uh, the children had spent the whole first semester exploring the mysteries of a particular site, a popular shopping site, because the children felt that's where they could find the most mysteries. So they were out there maybe once every two weeks in a big store um, hunting for mysteries, like the mystery of multiple televisions uh, or the mystery of lights. So when when we were in lockdown, we had to figure out, how do we continue this kind of learning? And we then focused on where the kids were in their homes. And we knew that kids were sort of trapped in their homes. They couldn't go out. Many of us couldn't. And the only place that they could look at was from the view of their window. It might be a high-rise or an apartment or a home here, you know, in Manoa. And the children talked about the mysteries that, that were out there beyond their window. So we talked about that kind of mystery, which led to discussions then about what kind of hope could be provided to the people that they don't know, they don't encounter anymore. So this, you know, that kind of mystery then. I mean, it was very touching. At the end of the semester, the children created signs, they drew signs, and they put them up in their windows for postmen to see, for a neighbor to see, so that they could communicate with their neighbor that they were doing well, but they were hoping that their neighbors or whoever would see the sign was also okay in COVID. Mm. They had hopes and dreams for the homeless, the doctors, essential workers, but they developed a real deep sense of empathy for those that they couldn't see. For a school that often takes students out on research trips, it it has made us think very carefully now about how we can still sustain this momentum about wondering while we are in our classrooms. So there there are many things, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't have to look very hard. Um, We talk about our backyards as places of, of wonder and lots of questions that we can raise about our immediate backyards just outside of our classroom. 
We also still have the ability to take kids on virtual trips. So, for example, one class last semester still took kids out virtually to Campbell Industrial Park to watch the birthing of an albatross. So those things are still very possible. And we've also been finding that there are silver linings, even with these obstacles um, in the classroom. Reaching out to other classrooms and having those discussions, which might have been more difficult um, in a classroom, tapping into people who couldn't make it to campus, but now we can just click on their Zoom link. We still find ways to, to have the children feel connected to a community. That was Edna Hussey, principal of Mid-Pacific Institute's preschool and elementary school, talking about igniting curiosity, finding codes in nature, our keiki, decoding our world. Support for HPR comes from Chaminade University, helping to support Hawaii's innovation economy with its bachelor's in data science analytics and visualization, providing a technical foundation paired with data ethics and communication. Chaminade.edu. Ever wonder what it takes to run a radio station in a pandemic? We pull back the curtain in HPR's 2020 annual report. We recap the accomplishments of our local news team and highlight how we've continued to celebrate live music this year plus some silver linings for good measure. Those on our email list will automatically receive the report. If you're not yet subscribed, just send a note to members at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Pineapple Tweed Public Relations and Marketing, believing in the value of creating a more informed public, a supporter of the reporting, news coverage, and storytelling heard daily on HPR. That's a wrap for today. Tomorrow we hear from an Oahu farmer who wants others to give cashews a try. Do you have a story idea to share with us? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation. Head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the Conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. (music) 